right, grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Last week, we we're still tracking in the whole conversation, teaching through uh, the church. And last week, we considered um, our urgent task, the privilege that we have as a church to be part of God and making His glorious gospel known to the nations, and specifically those who've never heard of Christ. And so this morning, I want to continue thinking about the church, but consider the distinguishing mark of the church from Acts chapter 2. And um, we're picking up kind of midstream. We'll look at a familiar passage starting in verse 42. Uh, But just to kind of give you an idea of the storyline up to this point, Jesus has died. He was crucified, buried, uh, resurrected, and appeared to uh, certain people, certain followers, post-resurrection, and then um, Acts begins with Jesus actually ascending to the right hand of the Father. And he tells his followers, he tells them, you go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise. Well, we know uh, from the larger teachings of Scripture that the promise is the Holy Spirit. And so they go to Jerusalem and they're praying, waiting for this promise. And then on the day of Pentecost, they're all gathered together uh, with a large number of people there in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the church Uh, in some unique, uh, very indicative ways, showing that God is uh, moving among His church. And um, people are hearing the the message that that all the apostles are proclaiming in their own language. And there's this accusation that, hey, these guys must be drunk. This is kind of crazy. This shouldn't be going on. And so Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. He says, hey, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said. And so then he goes and he preaches... Um, we'll look at the, the message that he preaches in just a minute. And um, the, the conclusion of his message is, you killed Jesus. Like, it's your fault that Jesus is dead. It's our fault that Jesus is dead. And the, the cry from the crowd is, okay, so what do we need to do? Like, there's just this heavy conviction upon the crowd that had heard this message and had seen this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And Peter just says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And so that day, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So immediately, 3,000 people are added to the 120 who were gathered together in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room. So we're at least at 3120 at this point. All right? Which brings us to verse 42. We'll read through verse 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves, that's the 3120, 3,120 people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, what we confess, this is your word that you've given to us so that we can know you, so that we can worship you and honor you. We can know how to follow you. We confess our need for you as your church to see uh, how you moved in these brothers and sisters over 2,000 years ago and Lord, help us to to rightly apply what we see from the truth of Scripture today. And Father, we want to be 
We want to be a church that, that honors you, that holds the Bible in high regard and exalts the Lord Jesus and depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so give us grace to do those things. Give, us, give me grace to preach your word well. Give us grace as a church to receive your word well. And then, Lord, give us grace to respond in ways that please you and honor Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So here we have the early church. Um, and we have to consider for, for a moment what was unique about this group of brothers and sisters. And so uh, based on what Luke, Luke wrote, the book of Acts, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And this is the second volume of his work. And based on what he's recording here, there's a distinguishing mark for the early church, which we can directly apply to us in 2018 here at Redeemer Church. And so we'll look at one distinguishing mark and then how that mark is fleshed out in a couple ways. So the distinguishing mark for the early church is that of devotion. That of devotion. If you see there in verse 42, he says, And they devoted themselves. And then he goes on to explain what they devoted themselves to. So the they here is referring to the 3,000 who were just saved, plus the 120 from chapter 1, all saved people in the church. At this point, this is the purest that the church has been, right? Because the Holy Spirit's just come. People have expressed faith and repentance toward, uh, toward God. And so he says they devoted themselves. The, the word devotion here, it carries the idea of a steadfast, a single-minded commitment, fidelity to a certain course of action. So everybody's on the same page. They're on the same path, same track, moving in the same direction. It also carries the idea of persistence and perseverance. Uh, The New American Standard translates the phrase here, they devoted themselves as they continually devoted themselves to. So it's not just a one moment in time. They said, okay, I'm in, we're good. But there's a continual reality that's going on for the people here in the early church. It's not the first time that Luke has used this same language. So if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 14, referring to the 120 who are gathered together, He says uh, in chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So they were committed to this task of prayer. If you go past our text for this morning on into Acts chapter 6, verse 4, where there's uh, a problem of uh, misdirection for the elders, for the leaders, for the apostles in the early church, uh, they they say, appoint seven men who can take care of this need, taking care of widows in the church, but we will devote ourselves, same word, devote ourselves to the ministry of to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the distinguishing mark, the, the identifying characteristic for the early church was that of devotion. What set them apart, what made them look different was devotion. Now to be clear, we'll, t- we'll look at how, how this devotion played out. But devotion, we can use another word, commitment, um, steadfastness toward this. This was the normal pattern for sur- first century Christians. This is not exceptional. This is not extraordinary. It's actually very ordinary. This is the way that the church operated. And, and as we'll look, as we look at the text, as we unpack the text over the next few minutes, we'll see that, that there isn't like something just super uh, eye-catching toward what they're doing. They're just going about a regular rhythm of life as the church, but they're committed to it. They're devoted to it. There's a, there's a common devotion toward this. 
And so for, for Redeemer specifically, it reminds us that we don't, we don't have to be like cutting edge. We don't have to be trendy. We don't have to be cool. We don't have to, to pursue relevance at all costs. We don't have to be miles ahead of everyone else in whatever category as if we're in some competition with other churches for whatever reason that would even happen. Um, if we choose that route, we will run ourselves ragged. We'll, we'll end up just kind of being disarrayed trying to keep up with whatever the latest method is whatever the latest strategy is whatever the latest trend is we're to be devoted to the basics of the church and so we see that here in uh the text john MacArthur refers to this this uh snapshot of the church uh, by saying this is an ordinary church there's nothing flashy nothing radical nothing extreme nothing over the top nothing borrowed from the culture this is an ordinary church which is a good reminder for us like, as Redeemer Church, we just have to be normal. We just have to be, we don't have to be trendy. We don't have to be cool. We don't have to be eye-catching. We just have to be normal. But we have to be normal according to the biblical standards of being normal. Biblically normal. We have to be devoted. And so, now let's ask the question, what were they devoted to? So, before we, before we go into some of the specifics here, just ponder for a moment if devotion to the church is a reality that will be characteristic of your life. All right, we see the picture here for the early church. After 3,000 people are added to the church, they devoted themselves to these things. And so because you realize, like we get this, the church can either be something that we are absolutely committed to, or the church can actually be kind of an afterthought. Like reality in church can kind of be an addendum, something we just kind of add on to life, or church can actually be something that we actually center our lives around. Right? And what we see from the text here is that church is not like something that you add to family, work, leisure, fun, pursuits, career, accomplishments. But church is actually at the centerpiece of all of those things. And, and the church, functioning normally, functioning as it is to function, then family, work, career, all these things find their proper place. And so what are we devoted to? The first century church... Uh, two things specifically that they were devoted to, and one of them fleshes out two ways. But the first that we see here, and the order here is important. First, we see they're devoted to doctrine. They were devoted to doctrine. So going on here in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, specifically the apostles' teaching. We would call this doctrine, and doctrine is placed first in this list of things that they are devoted to. And the reason why is because doctrine sets the course for the church, right? You have to understand something. We have to understand something. Doctrine is a big deal. What we believe and why we believe that really, really matters. Because if we don't hold doctrine in high regard, then we're just up to everyone's, it's just up to everyone's opinion, right? And somebody in the room is wrong. <laughs> but if we can say no doctrine is the, the way that we are going to chart our course, then we're all heading in the same direction. And so in the immediate context, what was this apostle's teaching? The apostles' teaching in the immediate context was Jesus. They are, they are reteaching what Jesus had taught them. Right? They are reteaching what Jesus has taught them before he died, but then they're also reteaching what Jesus had taught them in the 40 days after his resurrection. And so now we have this privilege of having a completed book, right? That is full of doctrine that shows us what we are to be devoted to. So we have to be committed to teaching the truth and doctrine. Here's why. Right and proper doctrine consistently reveals Christ to the church. We don't 
preach and teach and learn doctrine just for the sake of gaining knowledge. We preach and teach and learn doctrine for the sake of knowing Christ. We gain knowledge. We learn about God. We learn about how God works. We learn about who He is. But the goal in learning about who He is and how He works is to actually know Him and to be devoted to Him. And so, interesting, throughout the book of Acts, 20% of the content... So. Acts is a story from beginning to end, but 20% of the content of the book of Acts is actually teaching the Word. It's different guys, Paul or Peter or Stephen or others, actually preaching. And so 20% of the content of the book of Acts is that of preaching. What is the first event that happens after the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, and Peter gets up and does what? Preaches. He gets up and preaches the Word. And so let's look, let's look just briefly at, at Peter's sermon here. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 14. So there's this, there's this group that are saying, no, nah, they're, they're drunk, they're filled with new wine. Verse 13, Peter, standing, up with, standing with the eleven, verse 14, lifted up his voice and addressed him, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, that's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So what does Peter immediately go to in his sermon? The Word, right? What was the Word for Peter? The Word was the Old Testament, and he goes to Joel chapter 2 and starts to declare, hey, all that Joel talked about in Joel chapter 2 is actually fulfilled now. Like, this is the real deal. And so he goes on and he talks about uh, God is going to declare, he's going to pour out a spirit on all flesh, and if you get down to verse 21, he says, and it shall be that... Uh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he preaches the word, and then he immediately connects the words of Joel to whom? Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and, so- and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus. So he, he gets up and he says, like his introduction was super brief. Hey, nobody's drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Let's not be crazy. Here's what's going on. And he quotes Joel chapter 2 and says, Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled, and here's how Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled. This man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he, he connects the word to Jesus, uses the event of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, and the text of Joel chapter 2 to say, Jesus of Nazareth, this man, Jesus, attested to you by God with works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know this Jesus. So pointing to Jesus as a man, this man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he gave his specific location, his hometown, Jesus of Nazareth, which they would have all connected with. And so then what does he do? He preaches the simple gospel, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God and foreknowledge of God, there, Peter's just saying, he was delivered up, and he's, gonna, he's, he's not going to let anybody off the hook because he's going to finish his sermon with, hey, you crucified him, right? So there's responsibility there. But he says, he was, he was, he was uh, delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, exactly how God wanted it to happen. It happened. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what do you have there? You have, the crucif- you have the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and then you have the resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter is preaching the simple gospel. 
And so then he goes on in verse 33, and he said, verse 32, he says, this God, this Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. Like, we actually saw that just a few days ago, <laughs> right? They actually saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he uses a common event, a little bit crazy, right? We get it where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in a very unique way, and he says, it's not as insane as you think it is. This is actually God's plan. This is God's doing. And he uses this whole event to preach Christ. And he says, he's not crucified anymore. He's not buried anymore. He's not just resurrected, but he's actually seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and what you're seeing now is the promise being fulfilled that God has poured out his Holy Spirit on all of us. And so then he, he finishes with, with a cry uh, of uh, kind of, kind of a, a compelling to respond. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like super encouraging, right? And he was God. Wonders, signs, works, and you killed him. And the immediate response of the crowd is verse 37, Brothers, what shall we do? There's this, like, because what's going on, the people here are realizing that they are responsible. Like, it's, it's their fault that Christ died, and Peter says it twice. You killed him. You killed him. Right? It's not like coddling, hey, y'all, come on in here real close. We're going to have a nice, cozy conversation, and everybody's going to feel good about this. But no, he's confronting people in their sin, preaching the first Christian message, and in response to the what shall we do, his first word is repent. Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone who, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. And in the context of what Peter preaches, who is the centerpiece of this message? Christ. So, Redeemer Church, who should be the centerpiece of every message that we proclaim? Christ. We don't have to look for Jesus behind every bush or rock or every, every event in a story, but we're constantly preaching Christ. We, we're Like Paul, I want to proclaim nothing more than Christ and Him crucified. The, the full work of Christ on our behalf. And so we commit ourselves, like the first church, like the early church, to right and proper doctrine. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? We want, to, we want to proclaim Christ, constantly proclaim Christ. And my desire as I preach and others who preach, our desire is that we would see Christ. We would know Christ. If you walk away consistently saying, man, that Richard is a good preacher. Man, that Richard is a good preacher. Or walk away consistently saying, man, that Richard is a terrible preacher. Man, that Richard is a terrible preacher. Then you're missing the whole point. Or I am a terrible preacher. Right, The consistent rhythm of the teaching ministry of Redeemer Church has to be, my goodness, Jesus. Where we just become enraptured with the reality of who Christ is and what He's done for us. And if we veer from that, well then we're not holding true to that which we are to be devoted to. 
So why commit ourselves to right and proper doctrine? Just a few reasons. One, we know Christ through the Word, 2 Timothy three fourteen. But as for you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The Word helps us know Christ. Also, we grow in Christ by the Word, 2 Timothy three. 16 and following, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How do we grow in Christ? Look, just, I mean, let's be honest. We're not going to grow in Christ without this. Without a steady diet of the word, we're not going to grow in Christ. You say, man, I don't feel like I'm growing in Christ. How much time are you spending in the word? Are you meditating on the word? Is it an academic exercise or is it a desire to pursue Christ? Without the Word, we don't grow in Christ. So we grow, we know Christ through the Word. We grow in Christ through the Word. The Word gives us spiritual nourishment, 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The statement there that Peter puts on the end of his uh, verses 2 and 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, reminds us that when we've tasted of the knowledge of God through salvation, we want to know God. There is a reality when God indwells us by the Holy Spirit, redeems us by the blood of Christ, that we actually want to know God. And so, like newborn infants, we have babies all over the place around here, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. There's a tasting of God that is only satisfied and nourishing through the Word. Through the Word. So, the Word gives us spiritual nourishment. Practically, the Word keeps us from sin. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Word directs our lives, Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And so at Redeemer, we must be devoted to the Word of God. We must place a high value on the preaching and teaching ministries of the Word. And we can't give on this. Like, we can't back down on this. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. So, like, get, get what... Paul is doing there with Timothy. He's writing this letter. Timothy's serving the local church at Ephesus, right? Leading in Ephesus, preaching and teaching in Ephesus. And Paul writes a letter to Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. So as God is my witness, as Christ Jesus as my witness, I'm about to give it to you. Which like clearly indicates, you better listen up. Right? This, is a, this is of utmost importance. There's nothing more important here. What does he charge him? Verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the point there is, Paul says, no, you preach the word. You consistently preach the word and you use the word to reprove, rebuke, exhort, be patient, teach the word. Why? Because people are prone to believe all kind of crazy stuff. Right? Why does doctrine matter? 
Because as a church, we need to know what is right and what is wrong. We need to know what is true and what is false. And it's not just because it's my voice that's declaring or someone else's voice that's declaring what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. It's because the word tells us what is right, wrong, what is true, false. And so my voice or any other voice that's declaring truth here has to line up with the word. Has to line up with, with the word. And it's, I mean, d- don't three and four just really describe the age in which we live? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. There are going to be people, and that's fine, we get it, maybe even now, where, we'll, where folks will just say, that's just a, the teaching's a little too hard for me. You're coming across a little bit too strong. You need to back down on that whole sin thing or repentance thing or crucifixion thing. And so the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's descriptive of our day, right? Descriptive of of Ephesus in Timothy's day, but in America in 2018. And so they were devoted to doctrine. The, the defining mark, the distinguishing mark of the early church was that of devotion. And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then he goes on in verse 42, Acts 2.42, and gives the other reality that they were consistently devoting themselves to, and that is fellowship. So they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Fellowship here is sharing of things in common, as you'll see in the, te- in the verses that flow out of this. A deep association, giving of people to one another. You see kind of a a description of it in verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had had need. Um, That's not a vote for socialism or communism. The reality is there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came on the church at Jerusalem, and there were a lot of people who didn't have enough money to stay in Jerusalem. And... There were people who had money to help people stay in Jerusalem, and so they were ministering and meeting needs. But they were devoted to the fellowship, to the reality of, this is a phrase we use often, one another. They were devoted to the reality of one another. You see, church is not a location where people meet. Church is not an event where people just show up and watch. Church is actually a people who share life with one another in the gospel and for the gospel. Church is where true biblical fellowship happens. And so often, and some of our experiences would uh, validate this reality, so often church existence actually happens kind of in the land of the anonymous. You kind of, it's not as easy here, thankfully, but you slip in, you slip out, you go unnoticed, hopefully. You don't want hit, to hit, hit the awkward conversation before you get out the door. You check off the list for the week and you just kind of go on about your way. But that's not the church. That's not the church. The reality of them committing themselves to the fellowship reminds us there is no isolation in the life of the believer. There's no no isolation. By God's grace, we should actually desire to be around other Christians. We should actually desire to be around other Christians. They gathered together, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they gathered in the temple and they gathered in homes. We see kind of this rhythm starting of this large gathering, which we would consider a Sunday morning gathering on the Lord's Day. This large gathering, but also also these smaller gatherings, these smaller pockets where you actually get together and can really get to know one another. I mean, we, we have 40, 50 people in this room and we can't all know one another in this context. Right? Especially not an hour and some chains once a week. 
But you take a larger gathering, break that larger gathering down into smaller gathering, as we see by their pattern of breaking bread in their homes, and one another starts to happen. And so is gathering together with the larger group of, of the church and the smaller groups of the church a re- regular rhythm of your life? You say, well, I don't have the opportunity. Well, good news. We'll be rolling out uh, a new group or two in the next few months, so you'll have opportunities, right? That's, that's our desire, to grow some of our small group gatherings so that you say, well, I can't do this night. I can't do this day. Well, well let's figure out how we connect you with a smaller group, so that you can actually begin to experience and express one anotherness. And so this idea of biblical fellowship, this idea of being devoted to one another, is one of the true litmus tests of our salvation in Christ. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John three fourteen: We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. What is one defining characteristic for the Christian? It's that we love Christians. And if you just kind of say, you know what, I really don't, I mean, I like everybody in here, but I don't know if I really love the people in this room. Well, then the question has to be, do you actually know Christ? Do you actually know the Lord? Because John says we know that we've passed from death to life. We know that we've been made new in Christ because we love Christ the brethren. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the first indication of new divine life is a drawing together of people who have this life in common. There's a reality as Christians, like when we enjoy getting with one another. Like we, there's, a, there's a drawing, and I mean, let's be clear, it, it doesn't necessarily happen just because we all have similar interests. I can sit with someone who doesn't care a thing about all of my personal interests in life, but is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and there's a commonality that just happens there. right? And there can be, one of, one of my best friends has really nothing in common with me. Like he, he doesn't hunt, doesn't fish, like doesn't care about outdoorsy kind of stuff, those kinds of things. So there's not a common, the only commonality is that of Christ. And so biblical fellowship is one of the true litmus tests of our salvation in Christ. And so often, let's just honestly, we take this mentality. Mm, Man, you know what? I'm good. I'm just going to chill, hang out the way I am. Um, But here's here's the problem with, with not engaging in biblical fellowship. Without engaging in biblical fellowship, here's what we do. We place ourselves at the center of our own self centered universe. Right? Because we exist for ourselves. And we have no space for one another to happen. And so we have to push against this natural impulse to isolate ourselves. Through, and we do that through biblical fellowship. So how, did, how were they devoted to fellowship? How were they devoted to one another? Well, we see a couple of examples here. One, we see that they were in the habit of meeting together. They were in the habit of meeting together. So you see there in verse 42, he goes on and says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And in verse 46, he says, Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In the, in the immediate context, Luke is probably referring to a general meal that they would have, like a, a full meal as well. But also, this meal uh, would have culminated with sharing in the Lord's Supper together, sharing in communion together, as we're going to do at the end of our service. Here's the overall point. The overall point is that they celebrated Christ with one another by meeting together. 
And so sharing a meal with someone with biblical intentionality demonstrates biblical hospitality, but is also an expression of true fellowship. Hold your finger here in Acts 2 and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I want you to see how Jesus illustrated the importance of uh, this reality and then how Luke actually used the, uses the exact same language to describe what the early church is doing. So Luke chapter 24, Jesus has resurrected. Uh, he has, um, he's appeared to some folks on the road to Emmaus. And so look at verse, uh, verse 27. Or verse 25, they, they, didn't, they didn't realize who he was, verse 25, Luke 24, verse 25. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. <coughs> so he went in to stay with them. So... Like, this is resurrected Lord. And they're clueless. <laughs> they don't have a clue. And, and the, he's, he strikes up the conversation with them, and they're like, what rock have you been under? How do you not know what's been going on? And Jesus has not revealed himself to. But look at verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So at what point do they realize, this is Jesus. Wait. He walked the whole way with us. We invited him to stay. And this is Jesus. They recognize him when he takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it. Probably in large part because he's got these big scars on his wrists. Right? As the resurrected Lord, he still bears the scars of the crucifixion. And so he vanishes from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? <coughs> In other words, my goodness, how do we miss? This was actually Jesus. And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were, uh, who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Back to Acts chapter 2. The church was devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And so Jesus used a meal as a primary way to teach the disciples about himself actually several times through, uh, through his life and ministry. He, <coughs> He's at a meal uh, in the house of Simon the Pharisee when the woman comes and anoints his feet. He feeds 5,000 people. He's at a meal in Matthew's house after he calls Matthew to follow him, and he's at the meal with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, He actually uses a meal, the Lord's Supper, as a way to teach the disciples, you have to remember what I am going to do. And so it was through this meal in Luke 24 that they recognized the resurrected Lord. And so when we share something like a meal together, we practice biblical fellowship together, we celebrate the Lord with one another. We remember who Christ is, and we remember what He's done. And so, how were they devoted to fellowship? One way they expressed fellowship was through meeting together. Another way they expressed fellowship, Acts 2.42, was through praying together. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Prayer was a vital part of the early church's fellowship. And in the context, probably refers to formal times of prayer in the temple. We, find, we see in, uh, in verse 46, they're still going to the temple. Uh, but when they gathered, they prayed. And when they prayed, God moved. We see it all throughout the book of Acts. And so we have to pray with one another. <coughs> Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. I want to connect some dots on prayer and the reality of prayer, the early church's commitment to prayer. Uh, starting with Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. So Jesus tells them, wait for the promise of the Father. And while they're waiting, what are they going to do? What they're not doing is developing a strategy for how this thing's going to happen. What they're not doing is even trying to formulate doctrine, trying to explain what they're going to tell people about the one that they've given their lives to. What they're doing is praying. Acts chapter 1 verse 14. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They are praying. So before the Holy Spirit even comes, they're together and they are praying. Skip to Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Peter and John had been arrested uh, after the lame man was healed outside of Solomon's portico. And they they, they end up being released in this event. So verse 23, Acts chapter 4, verse 23 when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, which the chief priests and elders had told them, you can't talk about this anymore, or it's going to be, go bad for you. To which their reply is, um, it's up to you to decide whether we're supposed to or not, but we can't help but talk about it. They say, there's, no, there's salvation no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what do they do? What does the church do? Like, this is the... Really, this is really the onset of persecution on the church. So what does the church do? Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices, key word, together. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. So what do they do? They begin to pray. They begin to pray. And the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They continued to speak the word. So skip down uh, to verse uh, 31 there in Acts chapter 4. The place where they got, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word with all boldness. Skip to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse and verse 40. So, uh, Peter's been invited in. Uh, there's, there's a woman who's sick, um, and she, ends up, she actually ends up dying. And what does Peter do? Verse 40. Peter put them all outside. He knelt down, and he prayed. Skip to chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of Herod the... Of Her- of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Chapter 14 and verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And we could, con- con- we could continue connecting dot after dot, after dot. Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi, put in prison, put in chains, put in prison, beaten in the middle of the night. What are they doing? Praying. They are praying, and they're actually praying and singing. 
And so this reality of prayer for the early church is something that they were definitely, absolutely committed to. And so Jesus gives the church the Great Commission. It says, make disciples of all nations. <coughs> then tells them, you're going to be my witnesses, Acts chapter 1, uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church, but not until Jesus tells them, hey, go to Jerusalem and wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they are there for 10 days, and for 10 days, what do they do? They pray. They pray. You just got to imagine just the mental gymnastics that had to be going on among this group of brothers and sisters. Because their whole world is in turmoil, and they make the conscious decision to pray. J.D. Greer says this about this moment in the life of the church. He says, for those 10 days they they prayed, then Peter stands up to preach. He preaches for about 10 minutes, and 3,000 people were saved. Pray for 10 days, preach for 10 minutes, 3,000 people were saved. We pray for 10 minutes, preach for 10 days, and three people get saved. Our zeros are in the wrong place. This reality of prayer for the early church, for us committing ourselves to, devoting ourselves to. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage one another, not neglecting to meet together. There is a togetherness that has to be a reality for the church. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the day, as you see the day drawing near. And so gathering with one another to learn doctrine, to teach doctrine with one another, to engage in biblical fellowship, to encourage one another, to pray together, cannot be some afterthought. The writer of Hebrews, let's not neglect meeting together. And Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, that's not like... The, uh, the attendance bully stick that the church gets to use to tell people, hey, you've got to come to church, you've got to come to church. What's the motivation there? Motivation there is a full room, right? We just want big numbers. We want more numbers than the person across town. But the reality of Hebrews 10.25 is there is infinite value in us as a church meeting together, gathering together with one another, celebrating Christ together, Reminding ourselves that we actually need one another. Brother or sister, (laughs) you can't do this on your own. And God is not designed for you to do it on your own. So why would you try? Why would you try? They're committed. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayer. So what was the, what, was the, what, what was the result of their devotion to the doctrine and to the fellowship? Well, verse 43, we see all comes upon every soul, this reverential reality of God is in our midst. God is moving in our midst. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, validating everything that what they were saying was true. All who believed were together had all things in common. Verse 47 They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And what happens? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So everyone is in awe of what God is doing in the church. And God is consistently adding to His church. 
His kingdom expands when we devote ourselves to the right things for His glory and for His name. When we commit ourselves to right doctrine. When we commit ourselves to true fellowship. And notice, all of this happens as the church just responds to the gospel that Peter preaches at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. There's, a, there's just a seamless transition. We kind of divorce these two uh, acts in the book of Acts as if, like, one happens, it's concluded, and then the next happens. But if you look at the text, look at verse 41. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We almost do ourselves a disservice in our modern translations when we have these divisions with headings that have something like the fellowship of the believers right there. Because we think as if these are disconnected. But the principle that Luke is pointing out as he's recording this event of the early church is that 3,000 people are added to the church, and this is what they immediately started doing. This is what they were about the business of, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so, what does this mean for Redeemer Church as we continue to move forward in the direction that God has for us? It means there are certain non-negotiables that we have to land hard and fast on. Right teaching, fellowship, Breaking of bread, encouraging one another, praying together. And it's all flowing out of the truth of the word. The order there is important. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And so the doctrine sets our course. And then as doctrine informs us, we begin to obey appropriately. We say, this is what the Bible says. We reflect, is that indicative of my life is that evident in my life we say well no what is our immediate response repent repent for disobedience and pursue the right course but here's the deal we do this with one another we do this together the book of acts has together all over the place especially in these early pictures of the church's life together 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 and so look just push back against that natural tendency to fall into isolation Right? And pursue one another's. One, from a pastoral standpoint, one of the most encouraging things for me with what the Lord is doing at Redeemer is hearing about, well, this week I got with so-and-so. This week I had lunch with this person. Last week we had supper. We invited so-and-so over for supper. We, we have all of these relationships that the Lord is forming. And what is, the, just to be honest and upfront, what is your part in that? What is my part in that? How do we collectively push toward that? Because if we all just do our own thing, nothing's going to happen. Right? If we all just do our own thing, we're just going to show up on Sundays and call everything good and roll out. But if we look at the Bible and say, wait, this is what they were doing. We better do something really similar to that. Then it causes us to push in a new direction. And God will give us grace to do that. He will give us grace to do that, and it will be for His glory. Our lives are to be spent for His glory. That was their passion. That's to be our passion and so the distinguishing mark of the church is that of devotion commitment commitment to doctrine commitment to fellowship specifically two questions personally individually are you committed to doctrine are you committed to the word or is 
this Sunday morning event the first time you've looked at the Word since the last Sunday morning's event? Well, just do something really practical and change. Right? We can't, or to, to, to go to the next statement here, and to the fellowship. Have you intentionally encouraged one another or reached out to someone? Hey, I am in the middle of blank. Will you just pray for me? Engaging in biblical fellowship. Real practically, what do we do? We, we do something. We, we move, we see, okay, this is what the Bible teaches. Even if it's awkward, even if it's clunky at times, we just push forward. We push forward. And the, the expressions of, well, I don't have time, it, those, those things just don't work because we all know we have time for those things that we place priority on. Right? And if I'm saying, I don't have time during the day to read my Bible. I'm saying, the Lord's given me about 16 hours of awake time and I can't carve out a segment of that? I, don't, I, can, I can cut out this, I can cut out that, I can rearrange this, I can be intentional here, I can wake up this, at this time. There are all kinds of ways we can make this a reality. But we can do this with one another. And so if you're, you're hearing this message and you're just like, man, I, just, I, need to, I, need to, I need to repent and move forward, then I would encourage you, reach out to someone. Let's practice one another. Reach out to someone and say, hey, you know what? My desire to spend time in the Word is just not really hitting right now. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for, Would you text me tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and just ask me, "Hey, did you spend time in the Word in, this morning?" And just reach. Let's just practice one another, and give grace, and not beat each other with legalistic religion stick, but just encourage one another to pursue Christ and to do it for His name. And then we'll have this reality of verse forty-seven: praising God and having favor with all the people. Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And God will do it for His glory. Let's pray, and we'll share in the Lord's Supper together. Father, uh, we confess our, in and of ourselves, our incredible insufficiency to, to do anything close to what we're talking about this morning. And so, uh, we need Your grace to commit ourselves fully to Your Word, to pursue one anotherness, um, and to... <clears throat> live in fellowship with one another. Father, thank you for, uh, for putting us in the church, for in Christ breaking down those uh, realities of isolation, self-centeredness. And so, Father, even as we take the Lord's Supper together, celebrate the death of Christ with one another as the church, help us to reflect on areas that very practical areas in our lives that we need to change. We need to repent. Uh, we need to ask for forgiveness. And we need to do something different about it. We'll be honored as we uh, express breaking bread together through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. May we celebrate, remember the Lord's death, and proclaim the Lord's death through this simple demonstration. As we take the the bread as we take the cup will remind us of the perfect gift of Christ accomplishing everything necessary for our redemption and we pray it in Christ's name Amen